This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen D'Angelo of the Green Hook Gin Smiths Distillery in Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for joining me today, Stephen. Thank you. So, Stephen, tell me about your distillery. What are you building here at Green Hook? Well, we've built a um, gin distillery that we aimed from the very beginning at being, you know, the premier craft gin distillery in the country. And that's, we're completely focused on gin here. We make three styles of gin, and that's all we're aimed at doing. You know, a lot of the uh, distilleries that are starting up that are making gin uh, making gin as a means to an end to make whiskey or something else. but Yeah, kind of like that bridge spirit concept. Yeah, you yeah. know, get it out fast, that sort of mm-hmm. thing, because it doesn't uh, generally require aging. But we are, if you know, our name is Green Oak Gin Smiths. We were completely focused on gin from the very beginning, and that's all we'll ever be focused on. Wow. And so tell me about your background then. It's not in distilling. You just had a real passion for gin, I yeah, assume? Yeah, my background, um, um, my only background in gin was drinking a lot of it. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I was an inter-dealer broker in a Wall Street type firm, a boutique type firm, and decided I wanted to do this, you know, after the fi- during the financial crisis, that sort of thing. But it, I was still working in my previous career. Even after we launched, you know, for the first couple of months, I was Were you really? Home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and during the planning stages, um, took about planning stages from inception to the point of sale of first bottle was not quite three years, but in the two to three year range. It's and that's you just to get all your permits put together, finding a location, concept, um, concept. Yeah, first it's it's a lot from like we should make gin to uh, yeah. actually putting something into a bottle. Yeah, <laughs> you know anybody can get a distillery <laughs> up and running. You know, yeah. in, in a year, um, that's a big accomplishment. <laughs> so to kind of go into that a little bit. Uh, what was it like getting started? You know, what was kind of your biggest hurdle getting your operation underway? As I was telling you before, you know, before we started recording, um, the biggest hurdles have actually been post launch, you know, okay. getting up and running was a lot of work and it was very hard and it's not something I would want to do again. But <laughs> it's been a lot more challenging since we started, you know, yeah. um, new challenges you face every day, but getting up and running from the zoning and the permits and the licensing every day, it always seemed like there was something new. To something new. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a lot of work and there's a lot of moving parts. As I mentioned earlier on, it wasn't like I, there's probably people out there now who have a background, some sort of background in distilling. They worked in a distillery, or even if they worked in a brewery, they have a better idea of what they're doing as far as making the actual product. But for me, and a lot of the guys who probably launched distilleries on the East Coast in the past five or six years, most of us didn't have any background in it at all. You know? Yeah, you can't really do home distilling like you can do home no. brewing. You can't dabble. It's uh, You either go yeah. big or go home on exactly. some Exactly. So, and even the guys who are doing it at home, I mean, doing it on a home scale and, and doing it on a real scale, they're, they're not, it's not the same thing. Yeah. It's not like brewing or, or winemaking. It's very much different when you're working on full scale in, in a uh, distillery. As, as one person said, distilling is the Super Bowl of liquor making because it's it's it, it fermentation is part of it, but then you throw in a, a, a still and then you throw in all the regulations behind it. So we're here in Greenpoint, which is a traditionally very industrial region of Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. But it is gentrifying. How did you find a place to start a craft distillery? Yeah, I'm sorry we drifted away from your question. But yeah, that was one of the biggest challenges was, of course, finding space. Because in New York, there's very little industrial space left here. I mean, the zoning requirements for a distillery at that time, you can get variances and be what's in called a, what's called 
called an M1 zone, which is light industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really, to have a distillery, you're supposed to be in what's called an M3 zone, which is the heaviest type of industry. And there's there's almost no uh, M3 space left in New York because New York now is mostly uh, residential, commercial, right. uh, very light industry. So at that time, it was during the financial crisis, and there was actually a lot of space because people were going out of business. But there wasn't really anything suitable for my needs because for a distillery, you need sprinklers. And at that time, I don't know if it's changed at all, you only were required to have sprinklers in, a, in an industrial space that was over 5,000 square feet. Okay. And I didn't want a space that big because, yeah. you know, it's big overhead. That's so. a, yeah, the price for square foot here in New York, 5,000 would be, and that's just a lot of space. Yeah, I mean, it was just yeah. it's a big number before you had any revenues at all. So I was looking for a space that was, you know, 2,000 square feet with, with sprinklers because putting in the sprinkler systems could be over 100 grand easy. Yeah. It took me about eight or nine months, actually, to find the space. And I'm not talking about, like, once every two weeks I'm looking for a space. Right. I, you know, I'm on the internet all day long. I'm talking to brokers and, and that sort of thing. It was tough finding a space. Jeez. Um, yeah. so, so, like, after nine months, you finally do find this space. And it looks like it is now suited for the high-hazard Zoning that a that a distillery is. Yeah, this was a factory. Yeah. This was a this was a paint factory. So it was you know it had all the um it, it was you could have a distillery here. It's not yeah. perfect for a distillery. But <laughs> but you it, could have one here. It worked. Yeah. And then I was able to start filing for the just start filing for the permits. <laughs> yeah. So nine Ooh, months wow. of looking for a place, you find it. Okay, now let's start getting all the while permits. While I'm put paying together. rent. Yeah. Because, while you're you know, paying rent. Yeah. On so it, while yeah. I'm paying rent and building a house. So um started was able to file for the TTB permits, mm-hmm. and state permits. What was that like? What was the city like to work with? Because Yes, there have been a lot of distilleries that have opened up here in Brooklyn, but I would imagine the DOB still isn't super familiar with what everything involved. If it was now, I imagine it's probably a little bit easier to get it up and running. Now, actually, the state is is really trying to promote business in the state. So I think it would have been easier if I was opening up now. But I actually had my TTB, which are you know the former ATF permits, yeah. and my state liquor permits before I actually had building permits. No kidding. Yeah, so really? I, before I could even put in a boiler room. <laughs> you, so, had, you had everything you could yeah. to run the still from the federal government. but uh, And I thought it was going to be the other way around. Yeah, that's what it, I always hear. Yeah, it's traditionally what yeah. the distillers say. It's the federal government that takes the longest Yeah, time. no, they were actually yeah. the quickest. And they wow. were the quickest, and the, and, and the city was actually the slowest. But once I got to building permits, able to get the boiler room built and all that stuff. We ended up launching in February of 2012. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. How long of a period was that then from inception to light it up? Would you say about three years or so? It wasn't quite three. It was between yeah. two and three. From I'm talking about from like inception, like, hey, maybe I should think about writing a business plan to build a distillery and actually selling the first bottle. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite three years, but it was more than two. Okay. So getting started wasn't the hardest part. It was once you actually got started running the business side of it all. How do you distribute, for example? You know, how, how do you decide? Because you said New York's laws are very, or have, have evolved and yeah. you kind of have the right to self-distribute here, which not every state gets yeah, and, to. Yeah, in the beginning, it was great that we had the right to, we had the ability to, um, to self-distribute because I was, you know, we were making it, selling it, delivering it right out of the back of, uh, of our commercial vehicle. Yeah. So okay. um, that was a really great way to get started because, you know, it just takes that one element out of it and also the margins are better. So we were self-distributing for the first... 10 months. Okay. And we were able to grow in the first 10 months, like something like a 350 account uh, base in, um, you know, just in the metro area. Yeah, and now, wow, and now, 350 accounts. In the first, you know, in the first 10 months. Yeah. And it okay. actually got to a point at that point when we had, because we were doing so well, we actually had a lot of distributors coming looking for our business. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So then, and I guess there was like four or five distributors who wanted to distribute for us. We chose one who we ended up going with, which was a good, really good fit. And in the second and third years, you know, we were able to, even though we had to take a step back from a margin standpoint, we were able to really grow our um, 
base and really grow our business. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of uh, talk about them. What do you make here? What are your products here? Well, we make three styles of gin. Our flagship products are American dry gin, and then we also make two more sort of niche styles. We make a, um, a beach plum gin, which is sort of like our regional take on a slow gin. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and we make a, an old Tom gin, which is a, our twist on it. It's, it's more like an 18th century style old Tom gin. So how did you learn how to make all these styles of gin then? Because you said you, you have a financial background. Um, where did you learn the process of it all? How well, you... you know, it's all self-taught. It's, yeah. it's something you really have to uh, be obsessed with when you're, mm-hmm. when you're coming up with a business plan. you got to do a ton of reading, a ton of studying. you got to really see what's going on out in the marketplace as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you have to, I don't know, I think that's one, one thing that um, separates somebody from who's going to be successful and somebody who's not is really having an eye for what can be successful in the marketplace and what the consumers want. You know what I'm saying? Right. It, looks like, it seems like gin really is having a bit of a renaissance right now. It um, is, but there's a lot of people making it and a lot of people not making it well. So it's two ends you can, words you can look at it. One way is I, for us, cream always rises to the top. But in the other way, you got a lot of products out there, I think, that are sort of poorly made that might be dragging the category down a little bit. Okay. You know? Yeah. You guys kind of do a couple of things to really differentiate yourselves. First of all, you have a unique process that you go yep. through, this uh, vacuum distillation. What is that? Vacuum distillation, it's not a technique we invented, of course, but it's actually a technique that was used in the perfume industry in the 19th century. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, it was um, a technique that you know French perfume distillers started utilizing because they used to distill perfumes from, from flowers, mm-hmm. which was a very expensive process and not a very efficient process because flowers are very delicate. When you expose them to any type of heat that's common under distillation yeah. environments, they get stewed, you know? Sure. So they started utilizing this lower temperature distillation, which allowed them to lower the temperature they distilled at, and that allowed them to get better yields and produce, uh, get a higher yield out of the flowers they were distilling. So I thought it'd be a really interesting way to make sort of an aromatic, more aromatic gin, and it's worked really well for us. It uh, sounds like it would help protect kind of the delicate but Botanicals exactly. that are involved. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's uh, done very well. Our gin's you know, gotten tremendous reviews, and now it's carried, I think, over 75% of the Michelin star rated restaurants in New York. So it's been a uh, whoa, yeah, it's that's been a big, great. big, big move for us. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. And so, how do you, um, like with your traditional gin, uh, the, your, your London dry style, what kind of a method do you use to get those botanicals in there? Do you, is, is it a maceration? Yeah, is we it use a, a, yeah. a maceration. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What kind of is your taste-making process? How do you make sure that you're not just making 3,000 cases of gin only you will drink? <laughs> you know, How do you make sure when you develop one of your new flavors or even you're coming up with your original recipe that it's good? It's good to put into a bottle. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that you know, anybody you know, who's in food and wine, I think you always start with what you like. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's going to like what you like. And yeah. you know, gin is one of those spirits where you could have 20 well-made gins side by side and I might like one that... You might not like, and vice versa. Mm-hmm, you know, sure. uh, because gin, when you're dealing with different botanicals, it's all about the flavors you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think our gin is very uh, crowd pleasing. Okay. You know, is it just you and your partner? You guys figure it out. Do you bring in tasty panels? How do you get that kind of feedback to make sure that it is going to have no, an audience out there? I, I don't. Uh, you know, when uh, with our first gin and then our old Tom gin, I didn't like to go to get too many people's opinion yeah. on it. You sort of trust with what with what you like. Yeah. Because people can really make you start doubting yourself if okay. you ask too many people, you know. Right. Too many cooks in the kitchen, literally. They do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so your plum-flavored gin, what made you want to dabble with that? Because I wanted that, to that's, do it. that's such a fascinating thing, to actually use real fruit. Yeah. That's how you do it, right? You allow real fruit, to, real plums to sit in yeah, absolutely. the yeah. base spirit to, to let their flavor come out. Yeah. I wanted to do a uh, traditional English slow gin when we started. And I didn't know that slows don't actually grow in the U.S. Oh, okay. So we sort of turned after some thinking and after after we had some 
trials and tribulations of actually trying to get slows to us from Europe. Really? Yeah, there was no way we we're going to be able to get them through customs without them being molded. You know? Oh my gosh. Yeah, because okay. I mean, now if I knew then what I knew now, I could have gotten slows like that were frozen probably, but whatever. Okay. I mean, <laughs> it turned out <laughs> yeah, better anyway. Turned out better, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we turned to sort of the New York uh, cousin to the slow, which yeah. is beach plum. And beach plums can only grow from Maryland up to Maine on the beaches of the Atlantic Ocean, but they're very close relatives of the slow. Okay. If there was ever a time to launch like a local board, twist on a Absolutely. slow gene. It was, it was, it's now. You know? uh-huh. yeah, so yeah. we launched that. In, and in Brooklyn, <laughs> right yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We launched that in 2012 uh, in June and it's just got a cult following. We don't you do huge numbers of it, mm-hmm. but it's got a real cult following. We sell everything we make. Yeah. Know? Whoa, that's awesome. And where do you source your- uh, Out East. Oh, Long Island, you yeah. mean? Or, oh, okay, cool. So where does your base spirit come from then? Upstate. It comes from upstate. Okay, so it is all New York grown yes, wheat. Yeah, um, it's a state yeah. grown, uh, a farm grown uh, New York wheat, mm-hmm. organic, yeah. Very cool. And do you do all the initial distillation for it then here? All no, the fermentation? No, no. okay. No. Let's talk a little bit about your bottle design. Sure. It's such a fascinating one. How did you come up with it? Is that something you guys came up with? Did you work with a No, I worked with a uh, with a designer? I worked with a designer, yeah. Um, I had seen some of the work they had done for one of the co- this company. It was actually a scotch company, which I thought that their packaging was fantastic. So yeah, looked up who they were and um, started working with them You know, from the very beginning. So okay. they were with us before we even... Had, we were actually going to call ourselves a different name at that time. Really? I started working with them actually before I even had the space. Okay. Greenhook Gensmiths is based on the neighborhood, which is Greenpoint. But yeah, so I was working with them from the very beginning. And that was actually a pretty fun part, was designing the, the logo and the brand and just seeing different designs and stuff like that. It, you know, it's, it's really important. I mean, a lot of these small guys, I think, they underestimate the importance of packaging in, in consumer products. It's, yeah, because you, you really need to stand out on that shelf, yeah. first of all, and that's kind of what these package designers help you come yeah. up with, right? I mean, you need to have it all. It's not all about the bottles, about what's inside the bottle, but Absolutely. in a crowded and uh, saturated and mature industry, you need to do it all. Yeah. It can't be one or the other. It's got to be everything. <laughs> right. yeah. So definitely don't underestimate like your marketing budget to do that initial, not, not even marketing as far as advertising, getting your name out, but even starting with, you know, that bottle, that label is a marketing element it as is, you're first getting started. Yeah. It's part of your product. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a reflection of, of the product, of what's inside the bottle. Yeah. Did you go with a unique bottle then? Is it your own design or was no, it? No, that's a... actually, that's actually a, a stock, a stock okay. bottle. One of the that's one thing that I hear a lot of people, they really struggle with, you know, do I pay all the money up front to do a unique, to, to do a, my own unique bottle? And that's like a $200,000 investment. Well, we're going, stu- we're actually going customized now. Oh, really? Uh, we're, we're in the process of, of going to something. One of the reasons you didn't see that bottle around at all before us was because it's actually a very difficult bottle to label. Oh, really? So okay. I think that because of that, nobody wanted to use it because it's very difficult to, the only way you can really label is by hand. But, you know, once you start bottling, you know, north of 50,000, 60,000 bottles a year, you know, that's, it's a lot of work. So we're working on a, uh, a custom mold right now, but oh, it's, very cool. it's a big investment for a company who's just starting up and hasn't sold a single bottle yet. Yeah, you start thinking about everything you have to buy, and, and especially since you have to get your still in place first and everything. There's a lot and of things you got to pay for. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of upfront capital. <laughs> what kind of closures do you use? We use a synthetic cork, cork, whatever yeah. you want to call it, natural cork and spirits. Some you get difference of opinion as to whether or not it's uh, it's a good idea, but I don't, I'm not really convinced one way or the other whether or not it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. So then you just went with the synthetic. Um, yeah, I did yeah. at that time, but like I said, I'm not really convinced one way or the other whether or not cor- natural cork is a good idea. And what about your label? Was the same packaging firm? Did they kind of help you design yeah, that as well? The whole package. Yeah. yeah. You said you kind of started working with them before you got in the space or anything like that. Did it all kind of feel real 
like working with them, you start seeing, even if it's just on a graphic designer's computer, like, oh my God, I'm really starting a distillery. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, we have a label, we have a name now. It's all. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the fun parts. <laughs> so I see we have some barrels around here right now. Are you working on a barrel aged product? Well, our old Tom Gin is uh, it's aged for a year in uh, bourbon casks and it's finished okay. in uh, Oloroso sherry casks. That whole room, I don't know if you walk through the whole distillery, but that whole room on the other side there, it's dedicated to old Tom barrels. Very cool. And have you had any issues getting your hands on barrels? Because about that's something a, a lot ago. of bourbon people talk about. Yeah, I mean, we're using used, uh, used cooperage because. Uh, okay. We don't like new oak with gin, but um, the uh, last year at this time you couldn't even get used barrels. Right. Okay. It, it just wow. started. Uh, it started loosening up the supply about four or five months ago. Oh, that's great to hear. I don't know if it's going to last, but, but it's, <laughs> for yeah. you, it kind of happened at the yeah. right time. We were able to buy uh, eight or ten pallets of them. Uh, wow. Okay. You know, four or five months ago. Very cool. Your still is very beautiful. Where did that come from? It's a German still. It is? Yeah. Okay. What kind of research did you do to figure that out? Because that's one of the biggest pieces of, of, yeah. of equipment that you buy, obviously. Well, I wanted to do the vacuum still, which mm-hmm. was um, something that you know I, I spoke to. There's really only like five major still manufacturers, that guys I got to work with. Yeah. And there's only one who really thought that they could do what exactly I wanted to do. Okay, right on. Yeah. So it, just, it was just about finding, you knew exactly what you wanted to do, and then you found the right person who would be able to yeah. deliver that product to you. Yeah, yeah. Did you kind of have a, an oh crap moment the very first time you fired up your still? It's like, all right guys, we're going to do a production run. What was that What was that time like for you when it was time to finally, like, everything's exciting. installed, the permits are in place, like, let's yeah. flip the switch where you kind of... That was exciting. I, mean, I it was bet def- it was, yeah. Yeah. an exciting time. I mean, you don't never know. Um, there's also like a little bit of those nerves too, because like I said, I didn't really go around tasting people on my product to get validation yeah. on it. My first time I sold a bottle, the first time I showed it to a uh-huh. customer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the first time someone's actually tasting it, it's like, oh God, please yeah. smile, please or, smile. Or like, <laughs> in the first couple <laughs> of weeks, like we had an awesome, amazing, amazing review from uh, the Wall Street Journal which sort of was like, yeah. put us on the map. And that was, for us, if you get the Wall Street Journalism, it's not a publication you can buy a review from. Right, right? Right. So <laughs> that was local. like validation right there. And that's actually when I left, uh, put in my notice on my uh, previous career. Yeah, That was putting okay. everything into this, yeah. Very cool. Because it, it kind of came back as like, all right, looks like we got a real product here. Like, like, Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, it takes that passion. You have to be willing to dedicate yourself to it entirely if you're going to really make it in something this competitive. Yeah, if you're going to be an entrepreneur too, you can't do it part-time. Mm-hmm. You have to do it. Yeah. Well, so since that first time that you fired up the still, you put something in a bottle, you got a good product out there, you got some great validation, you've been able to add some staff here. What was that kind of like for you? You said this is your very first entrepreneurial endeavor, so hiring must have been kind of a Yeah, crazy I was able thing. to hire, um, well, actually my first hire, for lack of a better term, is a guy who I worked with in my uh, old industry. I worked with him on the oh. same trading desk. So yeah, he's, I know him for 10, 11 years. Oh, that's great. Fantastic salesman, so... He started uh, with us, I guess. If we launched in February, I think he started in, um, in April. So he was okay. the very first. And then I was able to, I had a, you know, was really fortunate to be able to hire a guy in July of our first year, or August or something like that, who worked, came from Clear Creek Distillery out in Oregon. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, so cool. He had, so he had some distilling experience. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, every distillery does things different ways. Mm-hmm. But when you've worked in a distillery for, that long as he had, had at the time, eight years, nine years, whatever it was, sure. you know about the real world problems. And in the yeah. real world of operating a distillery, it's <laughs> not about like what you see in a science textbook or whatever. It's about like things breaking and how you fix them and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. real world things that you're not going to be able to read about on the internet. You know? mm-hmm. So he was able to, uh, to come in and bring that knowledge and also improve a lot of the um, systems we had in place to a certain extent. So he started, like, as I said, you know, in, 
in July of 2012 part-time and then full-time in July of 2013. We had some part-time people helping out with tastings and stuff like that. Tried hiring another full-time guy for sales last year at this time. He didn't work out and it wasn't it wasn't really his fault. It's just that when you're trying to, um, working for a craft distillery and trying to push a single product in a single market, you know, the way we are that we only sell gin, mm-hmm. it's a little more of a challenge because you've got one product to sell as opposed to a portfolio of products to sell. Yeah, oh, you don't like this one. What about this one? Yeah, keep, yeah. Right? you guys are one thing. So. It's harder to justify, sure. uh, you know, a living wage for uh, for a guy. But, okay. You know, we'll that's see. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's all part of the process. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. You know, we kind of talked a little bit off air. The use of like consultants and things, there's a bunch of people who want to help you with your paperwork, who want to help you with all these kinds of things. Did you use a big Pre-production team to, to help you get all your nobody. Okay, nobody. No. has owning your own distillery changed how you go out to bars or restaurants or liquor stores? Now that you're on this side of the industry, on the production side of it, I mean, usually when I go out now, it's I'm not going to call it work related, but it's definitely business related. I'm, I'm yeah. yeah. You're, are you looking behind the bar and saying like, are we here? Or are well, we absolutely. I mean, bar? and if it's yeah. not there, I'm trying to get it there. Right. And if it's there, I'm trying to talk to the bartenders, introduce myself, yeah, know, yeah, the products, yeah. and you know, drink the product. Of course, is part of it. Yeah, very cool. Because yeah, I'm, I'm always kind of interested in that. Like, can you just go out and relax now? Or are you always looking? No, nah, you're always but, yeah. You're always right. It's your product, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. your name is on it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, looking back now, what's the one thing you wish someone had told you before you opened up a distillery? You know, knowing what you know now, what do you wish you had known then? Is there one piece of wisdom that you wish you could have told you three years ago? I mean, I guess the one thing you got to be thinking about when you're opening a distillery is that it's very, very cash intensive, very capital intense, especially if you're doing anything that's an age spirit, like our old Tom Gin, our Beach Plum Gin, or if anybody's doing whiskey, it's very capital intense. You make sure you have enough money and make sure you really know that you're going to be in the hole for a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. You're going to be home for a long time. If your business plan ends at year three or something, or like, and now we skyrocket to profits, yeah, that's not the yeah. yeah. So, you know, you got to be really conscious of what your margin is going to be. Mm-hmm. You got to be realistic about thinking about, like, for example, when we were starting, we were self distributing, but you can't self distribute forever, or maybe you can. And so you got to make sure that if you're looking, if you're doing projections, you got to realize that a distributor needs to take a margin. So that okay. means either you're going to have to cut yours or the price is really going to go up. And price hikes work in business school, but they don't work in the real world. <laughs> right. So uh, a liquor store is not going to be like, oh my, <laughs> your oh, gin is now twenty dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, margin. <laughs> no problem. I think the backbone of any small business or any business is margin. You know, so you okay. got you got to really be thought conscious of what your margin is going to be. Yeah, that's a big thing. So whether you got to do that by self distributing, whether you got to do that by having a retail operation in your uh, in your distillery or okay. a tasting room, is good business for a lot of these guys. Yep. Totally. You know, the guys in uh, who are running distilleries in the city versus the guys out in Long Island or upstate, it's a whole different business model. You know, mm-hmm. the, the guys upstate and the guys out in Long Island, they're much more, um, their business is much more driven on agro-tourism. Sure, okay. Which is actually a high-margin business, you know? Mm-hmm. But getting something through the distribution system, the three-tier system, is much higher volume, but lower margin. So okay. you got to think about what you want, you know? Yeah, so it's just very, it just goes back to what your original business plan really is and being honest with yourself. What are things really going to cost? How much money do I really need to bring in? Yeah. And, and you're never going to know what, what your, your brand sales is. are, you know? And you'll never know what, yeah. <laughs> you're never going to know what your sales are, so you got to really be careful you're knowing about what your costs are, you know? Mm-hmm. Very cool. One final question, one thing I always like to ask, is there one cocktail or recipe that you can share with my listeners? You know, they go out, they buy a bottle of your gin, and how should they really enjoy it? I think my gin, uh, my American dry gin, really shines really nicely in a gimlet. Um, really? Yeah, okay. I think it does, yeah. I mean, which is, you know, for me, it's more of a spring and summertime drink, but mm-hmm. a gimlet, the you know, classic recipe of, you know, two ounces of gin, 
of my American dry gin, you know, three quarter ounce of uh, simple syrup. Okay. Uh, three quarter ounce of fresh lime juice, of course. Yeah. You know, shaken and, uh, and strained. I like it up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a nice way to highlight it. I'm, of course, a gin and tonic drinker. So I love, okay. I love my gin with uh, Fever Tree Tonic, Twist of Lemon. Oh, very nice. Yeah. My Beach Plum Gin, it works great in a classic, like, slow gin fizz, for example, uh-huh. uh, which would be, um, you could do it with an egg wipe, or you can do it more like a Tom Collins, where it would be either an, out, an ounce of my Beach Plum Gin, an ounce of my American Dry Gin, just to give it a little more oomph. Okay. Uh, three-quarter ounce of um, fresh lemon, three-quarter ounce of simple syrup, and then put it on in a Collins glass with club soda. Okay. And uh, my old Tom Gin really goes great in a Martinez, which is... A Martinez? I've never heard of that one. Yeah, that's the historical predecessor to a Martini. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it would be old Tom Gin, traditionally, with um, uh, sweet vermouth, Angostura bitters, and a little bit of maraschino liqueur, like a Luxardo. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, you make it almost like a Manhattan. So you would do um, like an ounce and a half of my uh, old Tom Gin, Mm -hmm. three-quarter ounce of a sweet vermouth, something like a uh, Carpano Antica or like a Cinzano or even a Dolan. Mm-hmm. And then um, a, like a really small amount of maraschino, a few dashes of bar spoon at max, yeah. uh, a dash of Angostura, a dash of orange bitters, and then stir it like a Manhattan. Very cool. Yeah. Where can people find your gins? Where are you distributed right now? You know, we're in pretty much every uh, major retailer in the um, metro area, you know. whether Metro New York area. Yeah, yep. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Pretty much every top store has our, our uh, American dry gin. Mm-hmm. As far as restaurants and bars are concerned, you know, we're in a lot of the... Like you said, 75% of the... profile, yeah. you know, restaurants and, and bars that are in Manhattan and Brooklyn. It's a little, obviously, tougher uh, in the suburbs to, to see everybody, sure. but we'll get there. Um, <laughs> and Definitely. Our, yeah, our Beach Plum and our um, Old Tom are a little harder to find at retail because they're much more niche. Okay. But you can get them at places like Astor, Brooklyn Wine Exchange and those top stores like that, Park Avenue Lakers. All right, very cool. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for speaking with me. Thanks.